Welcome all craft nerds to this special summer episode featuring two of our favorite craft episodes of this past year, EJ Co on subtext and Charmaine Wilkerson on omission. And Grant, these two episodes dovetail so beautifully with one another because both authors spoke about the truism that less is more in writing. But this can be a super tough thing for writers to get, or maybe it just takes a lot of practice or trusting your reader a bit more. And since you're a master of brevity, Grant, I'm wondering how would you encourage writers to think about less is more and how can writers hone this particular craft skill? You know, I, th- I think uh, there's actually a time and a place and a style for big, long, wordy, overwhelming sentences and stories and novels. And I, I like kind of messy, sprawling, expansive novels um, a lot. Uh, but I also like ones that move through more, you know, nuance and omission. Uh, so I think that they're just different tools to have in your toolkit. But writing with a mission, it, it, it does like everything you said, it takes, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of trust because you're writing through suggestion and you're, you're leaving things out and you're just kind of dropping hints for them. And this, you know, the great thing about this, why, why it's good to do is it creates suspense for the reader. And it's also an opportunity for readers to be collaborators in the story. I think that's one way to think about it, that you're inviting your readers in to imagine the story along with you as a writer in essence. And but that said, I think a mission is one of the toughest skills to master. You have to read a lot with this in mind and you have to practice it. So much of it is about trust, as you mentioned, you know, to trust what you've conveyed, you know, with other elements, because you're, you're going to lean into tone and mood and imagery and voice. They're all going to work together. And then you have to trust that reader to, to fill in the gaps. And I'll just pause to do just a ridiculously shameless plug here. <laughs> I've, I've answered this question in an entire book, The Art of Brevity, which comes out in February of 2023. And I love thinking about this. I love writing in the gaps, as I like to say. Um, so more to come on that subject. Love it. Shameless plugging always okay on <laughs> right-minded. Uh, you know, and EJ's episode was one of my favorites. Uh, and so when we're choosing which ones to include, I knew I wanted to revisit her speaking about subtext because that book, which is a memoir, The Magical Language of Others, has really stayed with me all year. It has a haunting quality to it because what she's managing to do in translating her mother's letters from Korean into English is showing how much meaning is in those letters, but not said out loud. And it's kind of like the experience of invisible markers you know, which really intrigued me as a kid, like when you would write an invisible marker, and those sets always came with the decoder marker that you would rub over the words, and then they'd appear on the page. And that's a really magical thing as a kid, right? And subtext has that same kind of magical feeling. uh, And omission does as well, because what you're doing in your adult mind is beginning to see and understand things just like that decoder, right? What's behind the words and between the words. And the impact is this incredibly intimate reading experience, because there's a spark that's happening when you see what the writer is giving to you. And I think that's what I most love about these two elements of craft. Um, It's exciting kind of like an intricate puzzle or, you know, a present that requires unfolding like origami, for instance. I love your analogies, Brooke. Um, I actually often compare it to a Ouija board. Um, You're communicating with the other side through the tiniest of hints. And as a side note, Brooke, you know, this has made me think that I want to share with our listeners a little behind the scenes of the podcast story um, about what's coming up uh, in our fall lineup. You know, we talked with the Lit Hub team and they shared with us that craft episodes are 
dramatically the most popular uh, episodes on their side. So they encouraged us to do more craft talks on Right Minded. And since thinking about craft for me is like giving a kid a bowl of jelly beans, I'm, I'm jazzed about this prospect and wanted to put it, that out there since we're going to be um, centering craft a little more in the coming year. And there's so much good content we've already begun brainstorming. Yes, totally. I am excited to share that as well. And I also love craft. I teach memoir craft, love thinking about it, talking about it. And in fact, I also have a shameless plug grant as it turns out because <laughs> I am teaching a four-week memoir craft class this fall with Linda Joy Myers. And it is up and available for people to check out at magicofmemoir.com. So there's that. And immersing yourself in the craft of your genre is not only a game changer, it's actually essential. It unlocks so many possibilities. And really, if you want to write fiction or memoir in particular, applying yourself to the craft is important because I see it as honoring the genre. I love that thought that it's honoring the genre. Um, because I, I think of craft not as just like a writing thing on the page. I think studying craft is in some ways an exploration of life itself, because we try to represent worlds on the page. And craft includes the tools to build those worlds and to think about what makes up those worlds, you know, whether it's the way someone talks or the reasons, you know, to, to write a long sidewinder of a sentence, what that conveys about a story or, or how to use a short one that works because of what it leaves out. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so listen in, everybody. We are sharing some of our favorite moments from these episodes. And as I have said in the past, if you love what you hear, go back and listen to the whole show. Here are EJ and Charmaine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are here today with EJ Ko, and she is the author of the memoir, The Magical Language of Others, which was the winner of the Washington State Book Award and the Pacific Northwest Book Award and long listed for the Penn Open Book Award. She's also the author of the poetry collection, A Lesser Love, winner of the Pleiades Editor's Prize for Poetry. She's the co-translator of Yi Wan's The World's Lightest Motorcycle, and her poems, translations, and stories have appeared in Agni, Boston Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Poetry, Slate, and Elsewhere. Hi, EJ. Welcome. Hi, Brooke. Thank you for reading that intro. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also very impressive. You've done a lot. Your book is gorgeous. Uh, the Magical Language of Others, uh, your, your memoir. Uh, it's centered around letters your mother sent you from Korea during the years that you lived here in the States and she lived there. Uh, they went back to Korea, your parents, to take a job uh, for your dad in Seoul. And the letters that she wrote you while she was away are pretty incredible. Um, I just wanted to tell read, you know, our listeners who haven't read it yet that they're filled with advice and observation. And also, notably, there's a lot of subtext. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, how conscious you were of extrapolating from her words, you know, what I saw in there, which was longing, regret, neediness, optimism, guilt, on and on. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
unearthing those underlying meanings? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I, I do have one specific example uh, for a choice I made. When I first read the letters when I was 15, I was a teenager in Davis, California. I didn't know Korean then the way I know it now and being a translator of the Korean language. And I would read the letters then and just try to understand by reading the Korean out loud and listening just at what I'm saying and barely getting things and I would get angry and sort of throw them away or forget about them, which is, you know, why it was such a surprise to find them later moving to Seattle. But when I read them again, I found the 49 letters. I took them into a cabin in a forest in New Hampshire, (laughs) no Wi-Fi, no connection, and just sitting down and reading her letters in Korean. I just, it, it felt like I was reading them for the first time because I wasn't just reading her words. I, I could read between the lines. I think the word omma in, in Korean means mom. And most of the time it's translated into mom. But as I was working through the letters, I realized there's something different about the way she uses omma in that she uses it almost the way you would use it when talking to a small child. And that's when she starts using it in the third person more and more, like the way we might say, instead of mom, you can say, mommy thinks you're doing a really good job. Mommy thinks that you should grow up like this and that this might make you feel better. And if you want to throw a tantrum, you should try it. So these are the, some of the moments that clued me into our relationship is different in that she's not right next to me. She's across the world and she has to raise me. She has to mother me from across the world. And the way she does that is through her words. Her words want to be right next to me. And so changing mom, which it was initially all throughout the memoir. It's it's the word that appears the most. Um, changing it all to mommy was uh, one of those decisions I made to to give a sense of what's going on here and the longing and the distance. EJ, that's so interesting on the level of translation and the nuances of language. And I have a question. It makes me think of a question about translation. You're a translator, and I know that's really, really such an art. And I suppose it goes hand in hand to a degree with being a poet because of your attention to language, as you mentioned. Uh, I was wondering if you can talk uh, a bit about how the art of translation impacted your approach to memoir and maybe what are the ways that translating makes you a better writer more generally? Oh, that's a great question. I know that the initial way that I learned how to translate in school is through something we call a seamless translation, and that's translating so that the language that you're translating into, you want it to read as if it was written in that language to begin with. And I would do a pass of my mother's letters from the Korean to English, and there was a moment where 
and this was when I left school and I was out there in the woods, that it became obvious that by doing a seamless translation, I was also erasing her voice and I was erasing the Korean. And I went back to redo the translations, almost loosen them up so that sometimes I'll pick words because they sound more similar than that they mean exactly the same thing. Sometimes I'll add words to create a sort of rhythm that feels familiar and look at other harmonics around a sentence because I wanted to make sure that in my translating, the Korean was always present, that even if you were to read these letters in English, you could tell this was Korean that you were reading. And it was important because it reminded me that languages have histories and those languages have histories with each other, especially Korean and English, South Korea and the U.S. And translating is is a part of all of that. So when I write, um, I think I keep those things in mind. I keep in mind everyone in there and with me. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the form of the memoir, since letters form the backbone of the memoir. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious just how you settled on it. And if you heard anyone giving you advice to do that or not do that, I know I really struggled with it myself because I felt like writing um, a story through letters, it's just not done that often. And like I said, it does have challenges. Yeah. I don't know if I have a, a really good answer, but I guess I hadn't intended to write a memoir is probably where I'd start. I had intended to just write a book of translation and it would all be, it'd be the 49 letters that my mother wrote me, um, just sort of the original and the translation side to side with just a two page introduction. And I had worked on that and completed it. I thought it was just a book of translation, but whenever I talked about it, or maybe the first few times I, I actually shared it, uh, I would get the same response, which was this two-page introduction you wrote, which had the content of the whole memoir sort of packed in there to give context to the letters. They just said, you can't say that and leave <laughs> on page two. There's so much there. And if you can turn two pages into 200 pages, that would be something different, maybe something that these letters need. The letters are so important and they mean a lot to me, but I think they need sort of the, the, the friendship of those prose chapters to make sure we, we do follow the narrative. And so... I went back, and if you look at the memoir, it's almost exactly 200 pages. And structurally, I, you know, I had to come down from 49 letters to about, I think there's like 10 or 11, and picking the letters that gave me the most questions. And the prose chapters were sort of organized around the letters trying to answer the question that I had about that letter. So if the first letter is, 
or maybe it's, I think it's the second letter. It says something. It makes me go, well, who is my mom? Like, what kind of person is she? What? Why would she do this? And then we go into her past. To know my mom, you kind of have to know her as a daughter, as someone else's daughter. And so that was my thinking. And I just want to say, I think I want to add that I'm not sure either. I kind of, after the fact of writing it, I go back in my mind and say, this is what I must have done. This is what I think I I did. But there's a lot of stuff in there that I I can't quite explain, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder how many people out there can relate to that. You know, this I've, I've talked to memoirists over the years, like, how did you do this? Or how did you think about this? And I think there is a like certain je ne sais quoi quality, right? And, and it's interesting because that word quality is kind of central to my next question, which is about the attention. You know, I mean, I found when I I often do this where I'll buy a book um, on Audible and then I read it afterwards and I this is what happened with your book I I found myself like wanting to see how you laid it out but first I listened to it on audible mm. and there's a certain quality of attention that your work demands I think because it is very spare and that was what led me to think about subtext being the theme of today's show just because I I found you packed in so much meaning and it was your mother's letters for sure that also held a lot of meaning. But I, the attention, like the quality of my attention, you really required a lot of me as a reader and as a listener. And I guess it's not some, it's sort of a question, but it, it, around intention, you know, intention to be spare. And maybe that just comes from being a poet. But I did want to ask you about it if you were very conscious of that. That's such a great, great point to make. And thank you for sharing your experience with listening to the audiobook and going back to read the way it was written on the page. Oh, and I did want to add something about, about me not knowing what's going on, um, at least not for everything. And I feel like I trust that. Like if I'm working on something and I can explain everything I'm doing perfectly and I know how it's going to end or I know the reason for everything, I think most of the time for me, it ends up being really bad work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it ends up being just awful writing. <laughs> and um, for me, for me, that's how, that's how I feel about my work when it goes there. But when I'm, uncertain or or scared and terrified and feeling very vulnerable or there are things I want to do that I can't explain why but I feel the urge to that sort of takes my work past the point in which I can know or understand things and it helps me push myself and I think in some ways writing lets me do that I'm sort of I, I really like walking right up to the edge and looking over and sometimes jumping off. <laughs> and um, that's what makes it exciting. But I, I want to go back to this beautiful question um, you've 
you've put together about attention and being sparse. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of that comes from poetry, but I want to say it also comes from that moment in, in when I'm in college and the counselor tells me, I'll let you uh, forego your math requirement to do this intro to poetry class. And by then I'm a hip hop dancer trying to drop out and growing up in, in the clubs of LA, I, 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 it's so curious. I, I went into the, that class and I learned the word magnanimity and I had never heard of that word before. And the way it was explained to me after showing poems about my mother was, it means by the end of the poem, you have to forgive your mother or the poem has to forgive you for not. Otherwise, it's not a poem. It's just a journal entry or just a page in your diary. But you need magnanimity at the turn, which is the end of the poem, to make it what it is. And that was, I think, the first time I was practicing that turn into magnanimity. And I did it through poetry. I would do it poem after poem. And I got so obsessed with it. And it started to affect other areas of my life. The ability to make a turn in my relationships. And in the way I see myself and my relationship with the world. Which, which really needed that turn. I was in a really desperate place. So magnanimity combined with the idea that I'm just going to set the table of events. I'm not going to take anyone else's version of events off the table. I'm going to sort of set it and, you know, you get all the settings in place and let the reader sort of make their own judgments about what happened, but also let them make judgments about me. And I think that meant removing or just not saying some of the things I initially would have wanted to say so that I'm, I'm read in a certain way. And I think that makes the reading a little more sparse, a, a little more engaging, but it's also more difficult. I, I, I think in some ways, because it's sort of my first major book or I'm, you know, writing uh, long passages in it, I was, I was a little more careful, I guess, about saying too much. I'm thrilled to talk with our guest today, Charmaine Wilkerson, because it's, it's interesting to me the way I sometimes meet other writers, and that's meet with quotation marks around it, because I met Charmaine Wilkerson when she submitted 100-word stories to my other writing endeavor, something I don't talk a lot about on this show, uh, a magazine called 100-word story, and we loved her stories and published them. Uh, so it was really wonderful to be online one day and see that her book, Black Cake, had come out to great acclaim. And then later, it was exciting to see that it became a New York Times bestseller and a hashtag read with Jenna book club pick and, and more. In fact, a, a screen series based on the novel is currently under development for Hulu. This doesn't happen to, to most of the writers we publish in 100-word stories. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to meet you in this new sense, Charmaine, as a published novelist on our podcast. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Also, because one of the things I love about your work, Grant, is that you you love flash fiction, micro fiction, but you also love the world of the novel. And often we don't have people loving both at the same time. It's fascinating. I sometimes call myself a schizophrenic writer because you're right. There aren't many people who do both. <laughs> So thank you so much. And then that's why it was a, such a wonderful surprise to see that you'd written a novel. And, you know, since I first became acquainted with you because of your flash fiction, I'd love to begin there uh, because I, I read that you started Black Cake not as a novel, but as a short scene about two teenage girls swimming in Caribbean waters in the 1960s. And then you wrote some other somewhat unrelated scenes set in contemporary times. And then at a certain point, you realize that they were the same story and, and that the story was a novel. And I love this as a, as, a, as a genesis story for a novel because it seems as if the novel found you as much as you found the novel. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that initial spark of realization. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned, first I'll talk about it from the point of view of just the story. You mentioned these teenage girls who swim. They're, they're open water swimmers. They're exceptionally strong and they're obsessed with the sea. And this um, part, this dimension in their lives will then affect their destinies. So basically I was writing, I just had this scene of these people. What would it take to be so driven um, by something that you would uh end up changing your life completely, even without meaning to, but because you're running up against the expectations of other people and what you're doing doesn't quite fit with the plans they have for you. So that was kind of the idea. And I was just writing, but this is something I do all the time. And this is why I think I got into flash fiction. And that is, I tend to write in short scenes. That's how I write always. And so despite the fact that I'm a chatterbox, when I get to the page, I just sort of spit out a little scene, spit out an idea, and then I move on. And so this idea, I thought it was a short story, and then it began to grow. In the meantime, in typical fashion, I had penned a story about this uh, 30 something woman in in present day in the present day who dressed up in an animal costume to earn money on the weekends as many people do and i thought that was a separate story and then i had all of this other stuff i was just writing and yes one day i realized that the the girls in the 1960s in the caribbean were beginning to grow their lives and they were doing this you know not at my behest they were just growing in my imagination and then things began to connect. I realized that I was writing a multi-generational story about people in the 1960s in the Caribbean and the UK and people in present-day California and also New York, but really a pair of siblings born and raised in California. And somehow they came together as this story of these two adults who lose their mother and realize she has a hidden past and then it becomes more distinctive because that's that's a kind of trope you find in a lot of stories. Someone dies and, oops, you find out there's a whole other story behind that. But going back to your question, that's that's exactly it. I write down ideas as they come to me, and I don't worry about where they're going. And most of the stuff I've written, I've never actually submitted as stories. I mean, I have not published that much, and I have not, I don't think I've even written that much but I have written a lot of small scenes and I realized that this was coming together. Hmm. 
It's so interesting to hear. And, and I wonder how many other writers have that realization. I, I feel like it must be common, that aha moment. Um, and, you know, Grant and I had been talking about omission, how it's a crucial tool of fiction. And it's a craft tool that often isn't talked much about. It's not really taught, even though it's so important to good writing. And I read a comment where you said, I've written passages that were quite spare, even cryptic. I believe that a scene can carry sufficient information and emotional weight for the reader, even without all the particulars. A mission has presence too. So it sounds like you're very conscious of using omission in your craft. And I wondered if you could speak to how omission guides your writing. Well, certainly if you're writing a story about stories that are not told, um, omission certainly is useful. But just in terms of structure, when I write, you know, we're all readers, right? So we're, we all love to read. And I think probably we grew up with that idea, that concept in poetry known as white space. But people don't always talk about white space in prose. Well, I believe that in storytelling, it's there. And that is, you know, when we're having a conversation, I might say to you, oh, Brooke, you know, I saw Grant down at the, you know, that place. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and we might talk that way. Well, what if we write a story that way? Meaning you write and you touch on points that make sense maybe to the reader. And the reader can go the rest of the distance on their own. And so I do believe that in structure, omission can be lovely. You can write many sensory details or you can just leave out stuff. And I tend to write uh, stories in which I don't always say where the people are, what the name is, you know, and I often do that. That tends to be my style. And I think that having written and read flash fiction sort of gave me a kind of permission, a kind of permission to use that in longer form writing. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Totally. Um, I say the same thing oftentimes, Charmaine, is that I've actually learned so much from writing the shorter fiction. It's really informed my longer fiction much more than, than the opposite. I, I, I think I loved your, your phrase of, of using white space for prose writers and, and kind of thinking about how white space works in poetry and then adapting it for prose. But, you know, going back to what Brooke asked, I'm not sure that there's a way for me to answer very clearly that question in the sense that I do not sit down at the laptop or, or, you know, with a, with a piece of paper and a pencil, I don't sit down saying, I'm going to write these details and not those. I just sort of write as it comes to me. Part of that is in the head and that's what gets omitted. And the other part is what you're communicating. And certainly when you go back and you're editing your work, or in my case, hello, new world, I actually have publishers who say, um, gee, we'd love to hear a little bit more about what Grant and Brooke do when they're not writing. They don't tell you exactly what to put, but you think about that. But what I know is that even in the editing process, I really, some things I didn't want to say, and I didn't think that I needed to. I'm a reader and I trust the reader. And I think it's fun sometimes to not have all the details. We're really circling this, the role of omission in, in your fiction and in other ways too. And Grant and I couldn't help but note your New York Times 
review where they said about you that uh, she approaches her plot like a mad chef grabbing ingredients from all over the world, slicing and dicing with abandon, tossing characters and palm fronds and a few drops of rum into a pot and letting it all come to a simmer. Uh, And it goes on and it's just really a delightful review. I was curious though, how did you feel about that description of your writing process? Well, I thought it made it sound as though it was more about food than it was. Of course, it's about diaspora of food, and food is very important in the novel. Um, and it also makes it sound as though perhaps it's more comic than it is. Mm. But what I loved, you know, about that is that that description does capture a certain element in this novel, I think, and in 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 many things that I read and enjoy, and that is. In this particular case, I think the book is a bit like a conversation. So, you know, we're looking at, I'm I'm telling you a story. And then the next week we see each other and I'm telling you the same story, but now I've added something. And so in that respect, the metaphor, the idea of the mad chef throwing things in, it's more like just a series of conversations where the more you go forward and the more you jump from one character to another, you begin to gather some of those things that have been omitted. So that in theory, by the end of the story, you do have a bigger picture. You do know a bit more. But even at the end, I feel that certain things are omitted. And, you know, that was the intention. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, this week's trend is uniquely annoying. Uh, it's about the fact that there's a popular ebook and audiobook scam in which people are choosing books to scour just for their summaries and then publishing those summaries as ebooks and audiobooks. And what's especially disconcerting about this trend is that there are ads for how to do this scam on YouTube. So people are basically coaching others on how to do this scam, advising them to summarize ebooks or rather summarize books and just turn that content into ebooks and audiobooks. Uh, and they're, you, you know, particularly honing in on popular topics, especially nonfiction, uh, you know, trying to find titles and keywords that are particularly searchable, I guess, in their quest to make a few dollars. Yeah. So for context, uh, for our listeners, these, these junk books are basically a result of Amazon's original marketing strategy for Audible. So from 2011 to 2020, Audible gave away up to 200 promotional codes to anyone who completed production on an audiobook, no matter the content. And those codes could then be given out for people to listen for free, but Audible paid royalties whenever code was redeemed. Uh, but of course, this led to people gaming the promo codes. And, and from what I can gather, even though Audible has changed its promo code policy, these scammers are still making money and confusing buyers and upsetting authors. And I know you've had some personal experience with this, right, Brooke? Yeah, at least three of our authors have had their books targeted by scammers in this exact way. And so what they've done is basically created an ebook that just has the summary of our books, uh, and then they're selling them. So they might use a nothing cover, like we had one that was just a plain solid color background, but the title of our book was on the cover. And then the descriptive content makes it sound like it's our book, but it doesn't say that it's just the summaries. And I frankly don't understand this 
because you would think that when someone buys the book and then realizes what it is, they'll just return it. But I'm guessing like any other scam, it's just about volume, volume, volume. And if they're paying essentially nothing, then a little bit of money makes it worth it. Hmm. I'm curious if you're, you or your authors have been able to you know, do anything to get those listings removed. Yeah, it's been a process. Uh, and since Amazon is less responsive to publishers than they are to authors, we have been advising our authors to contact Amazon directly. Uh, but the most creative of our authors did something that worked. And so I want to recommend everyone do this if you ever find your book targeted in this way. She went on to the posting itself, the scam slash junk posting, uh, and gave a one star negative review and said that this was her book. <laughs> and that what was going on here was copyright infringement. And Amazon removed the book the very next day or the junk book, because it's not even really a book. Uh, and so that was good. That was very positive. But the fact that authors have to worry about this is upsetting in the first place. And Amazon doesn't really have any policies in place to prevent that content from going up. And so it ends up just being the responsibility of the author to monitor the content and make sure that it's not happening to you because there might be a summary of your book out there and you don't even know it. Huh. I'm going to go check really <laughs> like right now, <laughs> right after we get done recording. Um, it's totally bizarre to me that there are people out there trying to make money on summaries or, you know, what we call little content books. And it's criminal to do this with other authors' content, of course. But then you can also Google how to make money off of low content or no content book and find all kinds of tips. And the authors of these posts are claiming that this is a way to make passive income. I know it's infuriating and hopefully Amazon will try to crack down and find some ways to prevent these books from getting out there in the first place. Although I don't have much hope for that. Uh, for now, I would encourage writers to check Amazon from time to time, just by typing in your book titles and seeing what comes up and you got to be a little vigilante in this environment. It seems, but better to be informed and ahead of it than to be caught off guard. And we hope that the takedown advice of posting a negative review to the scammers will help anybody who, finds themselves in this situation. So good luck. Thanks for tuning in to Right Minded. We'll see you next week. 